Lord, uh, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here today, God. I, I thank you for the fact that, that we know and believe, God, that, that you are, are here with us this morning and that you want to work in our lives. And God, I, I believe that every person who, who has shown up here today has come here with, with at least a, a small uh, amount of expectancy that you will do something in their lives. And whether they're here every week and, uh, and they're, they're a part of this church or, or whether, God, this is their first time here, they got out of bed this morning and, and they got up, Lord, uh, not for no reason because it, it's 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but they, they got up because they want to have an interaction with you, Lord. And, and so, God, I pray that, that, you would, that you would show yourself to us this morning. And, and Lord, uh, the distractions can sometimes, uh, for right or wrong, God, distract us from, from seeing your movement and uh, from missing our opportunity to interact with you. And, and Lord, I pray that that would not be the case. And, and God, as I, as I deliver this sermon, and I preach your word to these people and tell this amazing story of really grace, uh, but yet consequence, I, I just pray, God, that you would speak to people's hearts. And, and Lord, you would, you would change lives today. And you would, you would take us to a place, God, where we are, are more fully living our lives for you and, and intentionally, God, trying to, to, to do something special in this world for you and for your glory, Lord. Um, just remove all the distractions, put it aside, God, and do something awesome in this place this morning. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, as a kid, my favorite pastor, uh, he was the pastor of my church, was was a guy that that had major sin in his life, and it's funny looking back, kind of on the story and uh, of just of his ministry. And uh, we actually he left a church that he was a part of to to go with him to plant another church in Kaiser. And the church went, and I can remember it quite well, uh, from like 25 of us in, in a school building. And it's funny because uh, like three or four of us actually go to Creekside now from that 25, and we have no connection to that church at all as far as our church. But, but like four of us were there, and we're meeting in the school, and, and by the time uh, the pastor left the church, the church had a thousand people in it, and it was just cool to be a part of that. And not only that, but the hardest day of my life. Bar none, the very uh, most difficult day in my life. We called up, and it's a big church by this point, and, and we asked uh, our pastor for prayer, and, and he called back almost immediately when they got a hold of him and prayed with me over the phone, and, and it was one of, the, one of the coolest things for me. Just as a kid, I was only nine years old, just to have a pastor of a big church that, that would care that much about me uh, was, was incredible. And then... Out of nowhere, he was resigning because he was sleeping with prostitutes. And you look back on that, and if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you kind of have the same question, right? I mean, why that guy? I mean, why was he used so incredibly in Chad's life? I mean, one of the reasons I'm here today is his ministry, and I pastor a church is because of his ministry. And why was he used... So widely to, to really grow a church and, and how can it be that, that God would use somebody like that? And then you, I mean, you can look around at other churches that are, that are floundering and, and they're struggling and they're hurting and you look at their pastors and they're, they're great family men and they're great guys and they want to be their friends and, and you, and you think, you know, 
why and and even the bigger question for me maybe maybe not for you maybe you have a bigger faith or you just more assured of things i don't know but but for me the bigger question is like does it even matter I mean, does it matter how I live as long as I'm like trying to accomplish something for Jesus? Or does it really even matter if I'm making an effort at all? Because apparently God uses people who really aren't even trying to serve him in, in you know, good ways. And, and so if you're just kind of a logical person, and you don't even have to be really a spiritual person per se, isn't the question kind of there? Like, does it really matter if I choose to serve God? And, and, and as we're going through this sermon series, which is called Stories of Old, and we're studying the lives of, of these great men of the Old Testament, some of them great, we might ask the question, well, does it really matter if I try? I mean, if people like the pastor Chad just described, you probably know guys like that, right? And women like that. If, if really God is using them in amazing ways, then why, does these, why do these things that Chad is saying even matter at all? Because Chad's been saying week after week, you know, things that really hopefully are drawing you to, to really try to serve God in bigger ways and just make a bigger difference for Him. And when you think about stories like my pastor, you might say, does it really matter if I make an effort? Does it really matter how I'm living my life behind the scenes? Because look, that guy was used in incredible ways. And he wasn't really trying to serve God, or at least he wasn't serving God, and he was doing some things that we really would call evil, right? And today I think in the story that we'll look at, a weird story, uh, just totally strange, and, and you only know probably, even if you've grown up in church, like really just one part of the story, Samson and Delilah, and you kind of know the Samson and Delilah part, but, but even before Samson and Delilah, there was a Samson, and that whole part of the story is weird, and, and as we look at it, what we're going to see, I'll just give it to you up front, is we're going to see that sure, God can use people who aren't trying to serve him, God can use people that they are just really wretchedly sinning, whose lives are driven by, by things that we would call evil and bad. God can use them, but there are consequences, and God does not use them as well as he wants to. It's just the plain and simple truth, and we'll learn that in this story. Judges 13 is where this story begins, if you want to open it up there. Judges 13:1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 Years. This is a time in, in Israel's history where they had judges over them, and it seems like you have one good judge and one bad judge, and then eventually they get kings, and the same thing happens. And during this period in Israel's history, they are blatantly choosing not to serve God. And so he delivers them into the hands of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines were really... Israel's bitter enemy. Uh, this is what Wikipedia tells us. They were a sea people, and they appeared on the southern coastal area of Canaan at the beginning of the Iron Age, most probably in the Aegean region. They were Israel's most dangerous enemy for a long period of time. And the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines is one of the most interesting kind of dialogues in, in the Old Testament. But it goes back and forth, and it lasts for hundreds of years. There's a king named David that we'll talk about next week, and how he kills a giant named Goliath. And that king, a lot, a long time later, is still dealing with these Philistine people. They are like the bitter, bitter enemies of the Israelite people. And then we see that there was a man named Manoah. Manoah's wife, is out, out in the fields and she's hanging out. And, and it tells us that the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and says, 
despite the fact that you're barren, that you have no children, I, you, are going to have a baby. And that baby is going to be a Nazarite is the word that it uses. A Nazarite simply is a word that means a a person that is set apart holy for God. In the New Testament, when you see Nazarite, it's referring to a vow. But the vow is simply a vow that says, I will be set apart to God. I'm going to live my life holy, undivided to God. Your son will be a Nazarite, he says to her. And so make sure that you're not drinking and you're not eating anything that's unclean. And she goes back to her husband and she says, hey... Some messenger appeared to me, and he said to me that we're going to have a baby, and the baby's going to be a Nazarite, and he's going to grow up, and he's going to begin to deliver the Philistines into the hand of the Israelites. That's a big deal. And Manoah says to his wife, well, maybe we can meet him again. And he goes, hey, I better pray about this. So he gets down on his knees or wherever he was praying. And Manoah says, hey, God, we would really like to meet this messenger again so that we can know the way of life that this baby is supposed to grow up and live and what his occupation is supposed to be. And God says yes to his prayers. And the angel of the Lord appears to them again. And Manoah says, hey, what is the way of life supposed to be for our baby? And the angel of the Lord says, listen to your wife. That's good advice. That's really right there in Scripture. I would do well to learn from that just single verse. But he says, hey, listen to everything that your wife... It's not maybe good advice for everybody. It's good advice for me. Listen to everything that your wife has said. And then Manoah says, okay. He apparently thinks that this guy is cool. And he says, will you stay here? And will you have dinner with us? And this is a funny translation of the Bible. But in a lot of translations, it says, I will kill a kid. And we can eat. Uh, it's referring to an animal, right? And he's going to, to roast or cook an animal in some way. And, and he says, hey, stay for dinner. And, and this is what the angel of the Lord says. Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. And at this point, the Bible offers a parenthetical statement. And it says, Manoah didn't know that this was the angel of the Lord. Now, this is really important. Angel of the Lord is just an important term because... Who is it? And there's some debate about who this angel is. But when you read kind of the Old Testament as a whole, you begin to get the idea that the angel of the Lord is none other than God himself. It really is, I believe, and it seems to be the way that the Old Testament describes, it really is Jesus before the Christmas story when he was born to a woman named Mary and lived on this earth. It's the second person of the Trinity, the Logos is the Greek word that is used for him. And so here, they're having an encounter with Jesus before he was called Jesus. And so they they make this offering because this angel of the Lord says it, but Manoah has no idea that the angel of the Lord is the angel of the Lord at this point. And so he makes this offering, and then the Bible says an amazing thing happens. As the flame is going up, as he's burning this animal, the angel of the Lord goes up in the flame back to heaven. That's a pretty cool moment, right? And then Manoah says this funny thing, and I, I just... This is funny to me because it would be my marriage. Um, I'm more of the panicker in our relationship, me and Bryn, and I'm definitely the bigger worrier. And Manoah seems to be that guy because he says, we've seen God, we're going to die. <laughs> he finally figured it out, right? And, and so now he's like, it's over, we're dead. And then, again, listen to your wife, and hopefully he did here. She, she basically says, would God have shown us all of this and made these promises to us if he wanted to kill us? That pretty much sounds like 
my relationship. Like, ah! And then Bryn's like, really? Logic. And then I don't listen. Uh, and so that's how that story goes. And, and so they don't die. And then we read that the woman has a baby. His name is Samson. And it says this. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Really is quite the beginning to a kid's life. I mean, think about this. God, human form, comes, talks to your parents, says, this guy is going to be totally set apart for me, the son of yours. Not only that, but he's going to begin to deliver the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites. He's going to, to help conquer the biggest enemy that your country has. And then the Lord blesses him. That's what it tells us. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Very real and powerful way. Now, it might confuse you because if you know the New Testament at all, then the Holy Spirit comes upon a lot of people, right? And we can look at the New Testament and what we learn there is that when a person becomes a Christian, they say, Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross to save me from my sins. I'm giving my life to you. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon that person. That's what the New Testament tells us. In the Old Testament, no such luck for the people. The Holy Spirit came upon people at certain situations for really certain types of great work. And so here, it's not like everybody has the Holy Spirit. Samson has the Holy Spirit in kind of a unique and powerful and special way. Now we, we dedicate babies at our church and, and we think that's important. And really when we do that, that's a parent saying that, that hey, I want my kid to serve God and I'll do my best to raise up uh, my child in the ways of the Lord. But here it's like God himself has dedicated Samson. said, I'm going to make this kid something amazing for my glory. And so it's interesting what happens next. Given all of that, given really this is a privileged child in just more ways than we can probably imagine. The next thing we see is that Samson goes down to a city called Timnah and he he comes back to his parents and he says, I've seen a Philistine woman. Make her my wife. That's weird. That's like marrying a Laker fan. (laughs) I mean, this is weird, right? I mean, his job. The reason he's born is to help conquer the Philistines. He goes down and he sees a woman. She must be beautiful because he comes back to his parents and he says, get me, that, get me that woman for my wife. Now, it doesn't work that way. We know that now. I mean, if you're not married yet and you, you have seen somebody super hot and, and you go and to your dad and you say, get her for me as, as my wife, then it's probably not going to work for you. But back then, this was a good plan as long as the dad wanted to write the uh, check. I mean, as long as he had a couple animals that he wanted to give away. And his parents say, I'm out. Why don't you find somebody that's an Israelite woman, one of your people, not one of the enemy, not one of those uncircumcised is is how they describe it. And he says, no. And then he says what every young man who has ever wanted the wrong girl says. I've said it. My parents can tell you stories. He says, she's the right one for me. Every guy in here probably, unless you married your high school sweetheart and then you were right, has said that and looked back and said, I'm wrong. But that's it. Nope, nope. She's the one. That's how we would have said it now. She is definitely the one. I saw her. She is good looking and she is the one. And so Samson's parents go down. They head down to Timnah and they're going to 
make this woman Samson's wife. And on the way, they must separate because Samson is alone. And then we see the first instance of his supernatural strength that he's really, really famous for, right? A a lion comes at him, and then it tells us Samson destroys this lion as he would a small animal. That's pretty crazy. He just rips it apart is what it actually says. He rips a lion apart. And then they go down and they set up the marriage and they're coming back for the wedding feast. And and on the way down to the wedding feast, he sees this dead lion's carcass and and he, he looks in it and there's a swarm of bees and there's honey in it. And so he goes up to this dead carcass and he scoops out honey and he begins to eat it and he gives some to his parents. Now that's, it's gross to us maybe, but the really spiritual implication of that moment is huge because he as a Nazarite, as somebody who was set apart to God given the Old Testament laws and the rules and the regulations, the really ritualistic the ritualism, I guess I should say, of, of God's law for the Israelite people is not supposed to be near the dead carcass. But Samson sees something and it looks sweet and he goes and he takes it and he defiles himself. He really defiles the, the vow that is upon his life from God. And then they head down to this party. And they're headed down to this party where it's going to be like a seven-day wedding feast. We don't do that anymore either. But they're just going to party for a long time. And we're going to guess by some of the happenings here that there was alcohol involved in this situation. Alcohol is not inherently bad. Don't take that is what I'm saying to you. But this is the Nazarite way. You're not even supposed to touch the skin of a grape because you're so set apart for God. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say at this party that they're just drinking it up given the events that take place next. And so again we see Samson not living out the call that's upon his life, saying, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know what God has called me to do, and yet, eh, I don't care. This sounds more fun. And so they're going through this week, and then Samson, I don't know if he's bored or whatever, but he says, hey, I have a riddle for you. And he's talking to 30 guys. It's weird, and, and maybe given the story as a whole, it makes sense. But Samson comes to his own wedding without any friends. He just comes down, and if you know his life, maybe when he starts killing people in the story, it might make sense to you. But he has no friends. And so his in-laws get him 30 companions, Philistine guys, and they're hanging out. And he says, hey, I have a riddle for you. And if you get my riddle, then I will give you 30 new pairs of clothes, 30 changes of clothes. And he says this, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they can't figure out the answer. And finally, they go to his wife and they say, hey, have you brought this Jewish guy down here to destroy us, to make us poor? What's your problem? Figure out the riddle for us. And by the way, if you don't, then what we're going to do is we're going to kill you and your family. So she goes to him and and she says, you hate me, you don't really love me because you haven't told me the riddle. Samson's like, I haven't even told my parents, what are you talking about? And so she cries for the rest of their wedding ceremony. This three more days really, she's just crying and saying, please tell me the riddle, please tell me the riddle, please tell me the riddle. And finally, Samson is really frustrated, annoyed to the point of death. And so he tells her the riddle. She in turn tells the Philistines and the Philistines come and they give the answer. It's the lion and the honey. 
And Samson is mad, and he, he just drops one of the great lines in all of Scripture. There's so many good lines in this story. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. Isn't that, no, nobody finds that funny but me? If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. Now, before you jump to any conclusions, he's not calling his wife a heifer per se, actually. That's what it appears like, right? I mean, before she was beautiful, now she's a heifer. But uh, instead, what he's saying is, really, you did something that should have been off limits. If you go back, heifers weren't used for plowing. And that's really the point of his little phrase right here. And so they're not used for plowing. And what he's saying is that my wife should have been off limits in you figuring out the riddle. And so Samson apparently is a guy that pays his bets. He's angry and he goes down. And this is what we read. Then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. It's one way to get close, right? I mean, do you listen to the story? Maybe this is why he didn't have friends right here. He just goes down. He strikes down men. He brings back the clothes and says, there's your bet. And then he goes home super angry. Now, you say, maybe this is your question at this point. This is my question. Why did the Spirit of the Lord come upon him for that? Right? I mean... Isn't that kind of the kind of the same maybe as, as my pastor and, and a little bit the same as some of the questions we might have about why does God use certain people? And here, I mean, literally so Samson can kill people and pay a bet. Now, this is what you have to remember before you judge God or you judge the situation. You have to remember that this is part of a war. And what God is doing is he is using Samson's poor, evil, terrible, horrendous, awful motives in order to help his people win a war. If you take this just out of context totally and say, look, it's a murder over some gambling, then, then it really makes no sense for God's Spirit to be a part of that moment. But, but God is using these people, using Samson, to win a war for his people. Now, this is how the story goes. So Samson goes home and he comes back. And it tells us that he comes back to sleep with his wife, is really what it tells us. And the dad steps in front of the door to the wife's room, says, wait a minute, you can't come in, I have some bad news. I thought you hated her, and I gave her to marriage to your best man. That is not what you want to tell Samson. I mean, just in all serious, like, this guy is huge, never Ever. And if you're the best man, really bad spot to be. And never marry the strongest man in the world's wife. I mean, that that's just a side note. And if you get nothing else out of the sermon, then I would have helped you. Uh, never marry the strongest man in the world's spouse. Just don't do that. And so Samson is very, 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 very angry. And he says, this time I have a reason. To get angry with these people. And so this is what he does. Cool part of the story. He catches 300 foxes or jackals. Uh, and he, he gets them and he puts a torch in the middle of them. And he ties their tails together. Remember this part of the story? You maybe totally have forgotten, even if you know the story really well. And so this is like a big endeavor. This must have taken, this is premeditated. And then he goes into their fields and where they're storing grain, and he lets these foxes go with the torches lit. And so what happens is that these foxes, these jackals, it's one of the two, they try to go in all different directions, right? They want to go back to their homes. I mean, this is pretty traumatic. And so they start running everywhere, 
And what happens is that the Philistines' grain in the land of Timnah, their crops, their food source really, is destroyed. Now, they're not going to have any of that, and so what do they do? They go, they grab his wife, they grab his, her, his father-in-law and all the family, and they burn them to death. And then Samson's really angry. So Samson kills a bunch of their men, and then he heads off to the cave saying, Look, I've won. My vengeance has got the best of you. But the Philistines, and this is how it works with vengeance, right? They're like, well, we're not even yet, buddy. And so they go to the Israelite people, and they say, Look, you got two choices here. You get a Samson, or we're going to just kill you. I mean, we're going to start a battle right now. And here's the really bad news for the Israelite people, is that as they had been conquered by the Philistines, all of their weapons had been taken. And so picture, a bunch of people, swords, clubs, shields. You have two choices. Go get Samson or let's fight. And you're thinking, well, I have my kitchen knife. Let's go get Samson. And so they go to the cave and they say to Samson, what have you done? And Samson says, hey, I just did what they did. Not quite, but hey, I just did what they did. And he says, okay, here's the deal. I'll let you tie me up. That's fine. But promise me that you will not kill me. And they say, okay, we won't kill you. They will, but we won't kill you. And so they they take Samson, they tie him up, and they're handing him to the Philistines. And the Philistines let out a great shout, the Bible tells us. It's either a shout of war, or a shout of joy, or a shout of vengeance, or a shout of, of excitement. We don't know, but they let out a great shout. And then Samson rips the ropes on his hands Basically, the Bible describes it as as if a fire came to a rope. He just destroys the ropes. And he looks around and he finds the jawbone of a donkey. And he picks it up and it says he says, after it's all said and done, that he has killed a thousand men. Now, if you know Jewish numerology, that doesn't necessarily mean that he killed a thousand men. They use numbers uh, like symbols. And, and so really he's just saying, I've killed a lot of men. And then the story kind of gets drops off, I guess. It really drops off. And, and Judges 15 ends with this weird line that, that lets us know we don't know everything about Samson. We only know some stuff. It says, Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And then it flips over to chapter 16 without any, any more detail to what it looked like for him to rule uh, what his reign was about and if the people served God during that time or if he had some redeeming qualities that we don't see in the scripture. But, but it says he ruled 20 years and then we read at the beginning of Judges 16 that Samson goes down to a town and he goes in to sleep with a prostitute. And the people in this town, Philistines, they hear Samson's in town. And they're still angry. I mean, this, is a, this guy is like your only real adversary at this point. And so they surround the town saying, in the morning, he's going to have to leave the city. We have walls. He's going to leave and we'll kill him then. Samson wakes up in the dead of night and the people have fallen asleep around him and the city gate is locked. And so what does Samson do with his supernatural strength? He goes up to the city gate, he rips it out of the ground and then he walks 20 or 30 miles out of town. That's pretty awesome. 
Right? I mean, I like the Old Testament a lot. And, and this is just a cool moment. I, maybe you don't care, but, but he just he carries the thing like 20 or 30 miles, like a city gate. That's a big deal. And, and here's the, really the background information, what makes that an important line, is that in their culture, to possess the city gate of an enemy was to, to have defeated them. It was symbolic. And so Samson isn't just taking the city gate with him. He wasn't just exercising or whatever it might have been. He's really saying, look, you've been beaten by me. And then we get to the part of the story that is absolutely the most famous. Uh, there is movies about it. There's books about it. There are symphonies written about it. Uh, Samson and Delilah. It's a part of really culture and has been a part of culture ever since he lived, I guess. And, and here I'm just going to read you this part of the story in its entirety because it sums up Samson and kind of who he was and kind of his story. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the Valley of Sorek, which means grapes. Her name was Delilah. The Philistine tyrants approached her and said, Seduce him. Discover what's behind his great strength and how we can tie him up and humble him. Each man's company will give you a hundred shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, dear, the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and humbled. Not a question I would ever answer. That's when I break up with the girl right there. She's no longer right. Anyway, Samson thinks differently. Samson told her, If they were to tie me up with seven bowstrings, the kind made from fresh animal tendons not dried out, then I would become weak just like anyone else. The Philistine tyrants brought her seven bowstrings not dried out, and she tied him up with them. The men were waiting in ambush in a room. Then she said, The Philistines are on you, Samson. He snapped the cords as though they were mere threads. The secret of his strength was still a secret. Delilah said, come now, Samson, you're playing with me, making up stories. Be serious. Tell me how you can be tied up. He told her, if you were to tie me up with tight with new ropes, ropes never used for work, then I would be helpless just like anybody else. So Delilah got some new ropes and tied him up. She said, the Philistines are on you, Samson. The men were hidden in the next room. He snapped the ropes from his arms like threads. Delilah said to Samson, you're still playing games with me, teasing me with lies. Tell me how you can be tied up. He said to her, If you wove the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on the loom and drew it tight, then I would be as helpless as any other mortal. When she had him fast asleep, Delilah took the seven braids of his hair and wove them into the fabric of the loom and drew it tight. Then she said, The Philistines are on you, Samson. He woke up from his sleep and ripped loose from both the loom and fabric. She said, How can you say I love you when you won't even trust me? Three times you've now toyed with me like a cat with a mouse, refusing to tell me the secret of your strength. She kept it day after day, nagging and tormenting him. Finally, he was fed up. He couldn't take another minute of it. He spilled it. He told her, a razor has never touched my head. I've been God's Nazarite from conception. If I were shaved, my strength would leave me. I would be as helpless as any other mortal. When Delilah realized that he had told her his secret, she sent for the Philistine tyrants, telling them, come quickly. This time he's told me the truth. They came, bringing the bribe money. When she got him to sleep, his head on her lap, she motioned to a man to cut off the seven braids of his hair. Immediately he began to grow weak. His strength drained from him. Then she said, The Philistines are on you, Samson. He woke up thinking, I'll go out like always and shake free. He didn't realize that God had abandoned him. The Philistines grabbed him, gouged out his eyes, and took him to Gaza. 
They shackled him in irons and put him to the work of grinding in the prison. But his hair, though cut off, began to grow again. This is a tragic moment for a tragic man. I mean, really, the ruler of Israel, the chosen one to save the people, is in prison. He's in prison with no eyes, with really his crown, if you will, shaved off his hair. It's really like one of the great stories of fall, of kind of weakness that the, that the world has ever told. And, and he's in prison, but the story isn't over because they have a party. And they have a party. All the Philistine rulers come together, 3,000 men and women, and they're like, we're going to celebrate the fact that our God, Dagon, has given Samson into our hands, that we have won this battle. And this is what we read at the end of Samson's life, Samuel 16, 28 through 30. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen just once more. Strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might. And down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. This is a difficult story because of the paradox between Samson, his attitude, his heart, his drive, his life, his sin, and the fact that God chooses to use this guy. I mean, why not somebody else, right? And it's easy to look at this and say, and this is generally what Christians kind of do with this story. They say, God's grace. Look at that, God's grace. That is awesome. And sure, God's grace shows up in this story in amazing ways, but that doesn't seem to be the point of the story. Because throughout the story, really the emphasis is on a couple of things. Samson loves women. And by loves, I mean lusts after. And Samson is driven by vengeance. That seems to be the driving force. Nowhere do we say, well, look, God forgave him of all that sin. That doesn't seem to be the point of this story. And so all the easy kind of cop-out to this story is to say, whoa, God's grace. I don't think that's the point here. I think the point is different. And, and there's several things that we learn from this story. Uh, we don't get the, the answer to the question that we might have, why this guy? Isn't that what you want to know? I mean, why this guy? And God does not give us the answer, but in the story of Samson, he teaches us a whole bunch about us and how we should live our lives. And I just want to give you a few of those to finish. This is it right here. First of all, faith is very, very important. If you want to live a strong life for God, then you must have a real faith in God, a growing faith in God. And we don't see that in Samson's life. But it has to be there because in Hebrews 12:6, what we read is the excuse me, not Hebrews 12:6, Hebrews 11:32 through 34. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. And so the first thing that you have to understand, just about, about life, and living a life of power, and that moves God's kingdom forward, and has, it makes a difference, not just here, but eternally, is that you must possess a real faith. 
in God. And we've shown throughout the course of our, uh, the last four or five weeks that really faith is not some supernatural thing. It's not some metaphysical thing. It's simply this. I believe what God has said. For some of you, you may need to take the step and say, I believe that Jesus actually died on a cross to save me from my sins. And so here, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. That would be a step of faith for you. For others of you who are Christians, who made that step of faith a long time ago, the next step may be you saying, okay, I believe, I'm going to try to believe, I'm going to do my best to believe when God says that he will work everything for my good. I'm going to do my best to believe that God wants to use me for a special purpose. I'm going to do my best to believe that I'm actually equipped and gifted to serve God in awesome ways on this earth. I'm just going to believe it because God said it. That may be the next step for you. But the, but the overriding force in Hebrews 11, as we've seen through the course of this series, is faith. And while we can't see it in Samson's life and nothing demonstrates it, we must surmise that somewhere inside of him, when God spoke, Samson believed what he said was true. He may not have always been obedient, but he believed God and took him at his word. But there's many other things in this story that are, that are good to learn from. First of all, vengeance is bad. It goes back and forth, and it still leaves people feeling upset and angry. And I, I believe there's probably some of you right now who have been wronged, and I'm not disregarding the fact that you've been wronged. And you're thinking, if I can just yell loud enough at this person, if I can just get back at them, if I can just do something in order to make them feel the pain that I have, then I'll feel so much better about it. I mean, if they'll just get in trouble and they'll hurt like I hurt, then I will feel better. But in the story of Samson, we see it's not true. I mean, he kills a bunch of people, and then it tells us he goes back home feeling super angry. Vengeance satisfies nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And so if you're one of those people who are like, I just want to get even, you'll never be even. You're never going to feel even. And it's just going to elevate and elevate and elevate. And if we're ever going to learn that in the story, it's this one. I mean, it goes from a solved riddle, they plowed with his heifer a little bit, to a bunch of people dying, to some more people dying, to thousands of people dying. Just like that. And so look, if you in your head are saying like, I'll just, I'll, just after, I'll chat, I'll listen after I get even with this person because they really, really hurt me, then I just want you to hear that, that look, Scripture is showing us that it's not going to work and you're never going to feel better and it's not going to solve anything. Second one is so important and we have uh, many young, not married people here. The opposite gender can be your downfall. Don't be driven by lust. Marry a Christian. I lumped all those together. I mean, really? And I've seen this over and over and over again. There's people not at our church right now because of the opposite gender and the romantic feelings, this, this false sense of what love is and, and what it looks like in the real world. This has taken more people's faith and ability and willingness to live for God. This has taken more people's vows to say, you know what, God, I'm set apart for you, and totally and utterly destroyed them than maybe anything else the world has ever known. I mean, you look at story after story. You probably know stories where people say, I'm going to live for Jesus, and then they meet somebody. And the next thing you know, they're no longer living for Jesus. The truth of it is, this is true. I'm just going to make it so honest to all of you. You don't change the person who's not a Christian. 
It just doesn't work. The person who is a Christian always, 100% in my experience, will always be the person whose faith is torn down. The other person's faith will not be built up. I said this to somebody recently. <laughs> Actually, I'm at a wedding, and by the end of the wedding, I'm trying to convince somebody that I barely knew that they ought to break up with their boyfriend because he wasn't a Christian and she really didn't like him anyway, uh, at least as far as I could tell. Uh, and I looked at her and I said, you know what? I've seen lots of people become Christians because somebody broke up with them. But I've never seen anybody become a Christian because they were still dating somebody. And what you need to know, and I know this doesn't apply to you married people, it applies to you not married people, is the opposite gender can just destroy you. And married people, I'll tell you this, lust can destroy you too. And just taking that first step, just just looking at somebody else and saying, well, they're nice looking, and, and disregarding what God would have you do in those initial moments will destroy your marriage and ultimately can destroy your faith and cause you to not live for God in the way that you want to live. And so let's just get it out there. I know we don't like to, you know, lust is like, we don't talk about sex and things in church, but, but truthfully it's a big deal. And, and, and hormones can destroy your faith. It all goes together. And so look, look, don't marry a non-Christian. If you are a Christian, don't let lust control you. Whatever it is that you're looking at, that you struggle with, just get rid of it from your life because you don't want your faith to go down and down and down. And eventually end up in a place where you don't remember the vows, the heart that you had towards God in the first place. Here's the other thing. God can use you if you aren't living for Him. That's pretty obvious, right? I mean, Samson's really the whole drive in his life, the whole drive that we see in this story is lust and vengeance. Over and over and over again. Even in his greatest moments, it's lust and vengeance. At the ending prayer, did you notice when he's praying to God saying, hey, give me strength one more time? I would think after the, the really the pain that he, that he had suffered that there would be some humility. And he'd say, like, God, help me win this war for you that your people are in. But he says, hey, God, let me get them one more time because they poked out my eyes. That's what he says. Let me get back at them. He doesn't say, God, you're awesome. Just forgive me for my sins and let's, let's, let me worship you in this one moment of strength. He says, let me get vengeance. And so the truth is, and it's quite clear here, that God can use you if you aren't living for him. But here's, is, this is the most important thing in this story. I need you to hear this. I need you to understand it. Just because God can use you does not mean that he will use you in the same way that he desired to use you. And it does not mean that there will not be consequences, that's so key, consequences for the actions that you have. I don't care if you're a Christian. If you do stupid things, bad things are probably going to end up happening to you. It doesn't matter. You say, well, God will forgive me. Sure. You go rob a bank, you're still going to go to prison. That's just how it works. You cheat on your spouse, you're going to ruin your relationship and probably a relationship with your kids and you're going to hurt a lot of other things. You marry a non-Christian, Sure, God will forgive you. I believe that with all my heart. But guess what? It's going to make living out your faith the way that God has called you to very, very difficult. God can use you even if your, your drive in life is vengeance and, and lust. But it does not mean there won't be consequences. Here's what Romans 8.28 says. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to his purpose. And, and so look, you go around sinning and you call yourself a Christian and you're doing stupid stuff and things that you know God doesn't want you to do, he's still going to use that to grow his kingdom and to benefit others. He will, because he uses all things for the good of those who love him. 
But it doesn't mean that you're right and that there won't be consequences. Philippians 1.18, here, listen to what Paul says. But what does it matter? Talking about why people are preaching Christ. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And so, look, God uses people in their terrible, awful motives. For the people that Paul is talking about, I mean, their goal is to like be more popular than Paul. And he's saying, look, I don't care. Still preaching about Jesus, and that's a good thing. But listen to Matthew 7:21. in case you say, well, fine, I'm getting stuff done for Jesus. What does he care? Listen to Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Look, if you're not living for Jesus... If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have like a real relationship with Him, you might not be a Christian. It doesn't matter how much you accomplish. But the truth is, God can use you even if you don't care about Him. We've seen that over and over and over throughout history, but it does not mean that it won't be without consequences. God saves Christians. Period. If you're a Christian, you'll go to heaven. It doesn't matter how you live your life, although I would offer that if you don't live your life for Jesus, you're not a Christian. Because a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus. Christ, if you're just saying, I don't care about what Jesus thinks, you're not a Christian. I don't care if you prayed a prayer once. I don't care if you've been at church every day. You're not. You're just not. You need to know that. You need to hear that so you can become one. But look, if you are a real Christian, you make mistakes. You have wrong motives sometimes. God is not going to kick you out of his kingdom. You'll still be a Christian. You'll get into heaven. But it doesn't mean that punishment won't come upon your life. Hebrews 12:6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. What you need to know, this is it. God can use you if you're sleeping with prostitutes. Again, but but the work that you accomplish will be less than God intended. And there will be consequences for you and the people around you. Think about this. Samson's job is to conquer the Philistines. And he had the strength to do it apparently. I mean, he could have just started a, a revolt and the Philistines would have been put down. And then, in the story we're going to talk about next week, we still see that the Philistines are strong and that the Jewish people are having problems with them and that people are scared to fight them. And we say, well, those are two different stories in the Bible, different books in the Bible. I mean, what's the connection? Well, Samson didn't do his job because he was driven by vengeance and, and lust. And if Samson would have just stepped up to the plate and said, God, what do you want me to do? What have you equipped me to do? Then we wouldn't have seen some of these stories where men and women are dying years down the line. I mean, thousands and thousands of people die because Samson is driven by things that are not godly and he is not living the way that God has designed him and called him to live. And so look, I don't care if God's using you in great ways right now. He's not using you as great as he could if you would live your life for him and be driven by a passion to serve him always. And so what I want you to know, what I want you to hear today, I mean, remember that, that, that lust and the opposite sex can be your downfall and the vengeance is no good. And, and remember that faith is the absolute key, the, the, the foundational point uh, of doing amazing things for God. But here's what I really want you to take away from this sermon today. You need to be a person who doesn't accidentally get used by God, but who actively says, 
I won't be driven by the things of this world. I will be driven by a, a desire and a passion to serve my God and I will do my best to live out the things that He has called me to live out, removing sin and adding the fruit to the Spirit and the divine nature from Second Peter and I will do my best to serve Him in all ways. You see, what you don't want... I just and God does this, and and you can see pastors whose churches get huge, and then you hear things about them, right? I think Satan sometimes helps us be successful so that we will have consequences later. And what I want from you is to not accidentally serve God in awesome ways, or not unintentionally serve God in awesome ways. But I want you to make a commitment that says, "Look, I'm not going to be driven by things of this world. I'm going to be driven by my love for God and everything that I do." Now look, it may not be vengeance for you. It may not be lust for you. It may be a better job. It may be a person who says, you know what, I'd like to serve God and He's accomplishing some things through me, you know, and I minister here and there, but really the drive of my life is just getting a better job. It's just being more successful financially. That's really my drive. I want you to remove that and say, my drive is the glory of God. Whether it leads to better jobs, whether it leads to more money, that's fine. But I want your drive to be God. I mean, there's so many things we could just go down the list. I mean, I can look back at my young life and my drive was to be a better athlete, better at sports. And and I was pretty good about that, but I wasted so many opportunities. And God used me all my growing up years through college. He used me. And I can look back and say, wow. I mean, there were some good things accomplished through the work that I did for God. But really, kind of the drive of my life was just being better at sports. And I look back at that now and I say, man, I just wish that even though God used me, that really my drive would have been Him and His glory and His fame. And you can insert whatever it is for you. I mean, it could be a million different things that that really are driving your life. But what I'm saying to you today is that if anything besides the glory of God is kingdom, a response to the fact that He bled and died on a cross to save you from your sins, if anything else really is what, what compels you to get up in the morning and do what you do, then there's going to be consequences, first of all, and you're not going to accomplish as much as you can. And God wants you to through Him. I have a friend. He's the single most talented person that I know. Everywhere he goes, everything he does seems to be used by God in powerful ways. It's amazing. I look and I think if I was half as good a preacher as he is at what he does, then then I would be much better. And I, I think it's just incredible. He just... If he, if he does ministry, then people go to it. If he, if he, if he has a conversation with you, you feel, you feel blessed and touched by it. But he is always driven by the wrong stuff. He's driven by his fears sometimes. He's driven by his past failures and how that makes him feel guilty. He's been driven by women. He's been driven by drugs. He's been driven by success. He's been driven by a lot of things. And there's moments where for a second, even more than a second, he says, I'll be driven by God today. And it just goes away. He's driven by something else. And then he has another moment where I'll be driven by God this year. And then it goes away. And it's sad to see. Not because God is not using him. Not because he's not a Christian. He is. But it's sad to see because you can see the consequences in his life just adding up and adding up and adding up. 
He regrets things. And more consequences are built up because he lives in regret and doesn't live for the glory of God. And what I, I just hate seeing it. I really, really hate seeing it because I look at him. And from an out, maybe you, 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 it's hard. You're like, wow, really God could use me in just much greater ways. And maybe you can't see that. But probably somebody that you know is like, man, if they, if they just set their minds to it, they could accomplish so much more. And I want for you, what I really want for you is just to say, okay, I'm going to put down all these other things that are driving my life. Lust, vengeance, or anything else. You fill in the blank. And I'm going to make it my single purpose, my single goal, to be driven by my love for Jesus, by my desire to serve Him, by my desire to, to make Him known on this earth to bring other people to salvation so they can be in his kingdom and they can serve him and they can worship him and they can passionately love him and serve him too and what i think you're going to find is we're doing this whole series is driven by my desire to see you do more i don't mean just like do more stuff and fill in time but really to accomplish more for god and i think that while we can talk about a lot of other things until you wake up and you say look i'm going to make it my purpose to bring glory to God. You cannot accomplish nearly as much as God wants you to and I want you to and probably you want to. So make it the purpose of your life. Will you pray with me? Lord, you know, God, that uh, I have moments, we all have moments where, where we just really aren't thinking about you we kind of go through the motions, God. And, and I look at Samson, Lord, and, and he seems like a guy who just, he kind of went through the motions and he was driven by the circumstances circumstances of his life, God. And, and I don't want our people that come to this church week in and week out, people who will listen to this sermon online, the people who are new here, I don't, I don't want them, God, to just kind of go through life and, and think, well, this seems like the next step, and I'll take it. I got a promotion or new job opportunity, or, well, I like this girl, so I'll marry her now. But I want our people, your people, all your people, Christians, God, to be driven by a love for you, a passion for you, a desire to see you worshipped. And Lord, I pray that that would be the drive of our church. And, and Lord, it's easy, it really is easy, to be driven by us continuing to grow. It's really easy for us to be driven by putting whatever you desire on our property. It's easy to be driven by being well-known, by upping our technology, but all of that, Lord, is wrong. Lord, let us be, as a church, driven by a desire to see you loved more on this earth. Lord, I know that there's, there's people in front of me and, and God, they're, they, they're, it's, you're speaking to them right now. I mean, your, your Holy Spirit is speaking to them and, and maybe, God, you're telling them that they need original faith, that they need to become Christians and I pray they would not disregard it. But they would say, okay, what does that look like, Lord? And, and they would decide this morning to, to accept your gift of salvation and, and to have their, uh, their sins forgiven. They wouldn't just disregard it or push it away, Lord. And, and there's others in this room right now, I believe, God, who you're speaking to their hearts 
and they've gone through their whole lives just kind of accomplishing the next thing. Graduated from high school, they went to school, they got a job, they've taken the next step, and maybe they've done pretty well, and maybe, God, you're doing great things through them. But, Lord, I just pray that they would make a commitment this morning to want nothing more, to want nothing else than to bring you worship, to expand your kingdom, to honor you. Lord, I know there will be excuses and people right now are making them as they wrestle with you, Lord. They're, they're, they're going, hey, I just have too much going on. If I make that the drive of my life, then I, God might make me do things that I don't have time to do. Or, or they're thinking, well, if I do that, then, then I might have to make this decision to change this thing that I'm doing wrong right now. And, and they don't want to give that up. And, and Lord, you're bigger, you're stronger than all of our excuses. I know that, so I pray that you speak louder, but I also know, Lord, that you give us free will. So, Lord, as much as I'm praying to you, I guess I'm asking the people in front of me to just let the excuses go to the wayside and, and let us, Lord, hear from you this morning and, and make a commitment and a decision to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to just live my life for God, to accomplish something for His purpose, for His kingdom and not my own kingdom. Lord, there's so many tragedies like Samson. Lord, I've been in church for a long time and I've seen so many people that you use. <laughs> and then they're out of ministry. Because they had chosen not to live for you in certain areas. And I just don't want that for these people. I want them to just live for you, have no other goals, no other ambitions. Lord, and, and, and remove fear, because I think as I pray that to you, Lord, they, what they hear is I'm going to have to quit my job and be poor and live on the streets. And Lord, we know that's not true. You've always taken care of me. You've always taken care of these people. They're here. They're alive. They're dressed pretty nice. We love you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.